0: I think every British person has to take a pill at the age of 40 that makes them into a turf. So in the age of neutralizations and depoliticizations published in 1929, Carl Schmidt says, technology is always only an instrument and a weapon. Precisely because of this, it serves all. It is not neutral. He is a uh, German jurist writing in between the wars and he is known for uh, his not good... Being a Nazi? Rules. Being a Nazi. Yeah, he's a Nazi. It's, uh, there's no there's no getting around it. He is a probable anti-Semite and a Nazi. And he has probably the best conservative criticism of modern liberalism, I'd say. I don't like him, obviously, but I think he's the sort of person you have to see if you can get, you can disprove. And I think that he is the sort of foil to Pinker in my mind. For example, he says at one point of the modern condition, a magical religiosity became an equally magical technicity. The 20th century began as the age, not only of technology, but of a religious belief in technology. It's often called the age of technology, but this is only a tentative characterization of the whole situation. The question of how significance of overwhelming technicity should for now be left open because the belief in technology is in fact only the result of a certain tendency in the shifting of the central domain. As a belief is only the result of this shifting. And he identifies in this essay the sort of economization of everyday life. It's reduced to an instrument, but it's also kind of not because instruments are fundamentally an expression of power. And the secularization really just masks what we're doing to begin with. He in fact calls the enlightenment a... a vulgarization on a grand scale because it warps our authentic political thoughts on some level interesting yeah again you shouldn't be a schmidtian if you're a schmidtian you're a bad person but <laughs> he's an interesting thinker. there ha- he has to be dealt with on some level and I, I just don't think pinker can like respond to schmidt but then again i don't think he cares to respond to schmidt and That's the sort of overriding issue that I have with the book so far is I can imagine not very bright undergrads bringing up some of the points that he bats away, but I can't imagine a serious critic bringing up the points that he tries to like argue around.
1: The Enlightenment is, for Pinker, a baseball bat with which to beat your intellectual opponents over the head. True, It is nothing more
0: then i got but, another question for you do you think yeah, go ahead do you think being afraid of death requires you to want to be immortal no okay why do you think that
1: is because i think you know you leave open the possibility that you'll get over your fear of death
0: mm, true i think this is the pinker will kind of kind of brings this up in a way but yeah I, I think it's a sort of an interesting question of our modern condition of if we're structuring our lives around avoiding death it leaves open this question of then what's the goal is it immortality or is it something else because it can't just be the joyless quest for joy
1: I think my basic thought is that as long as we are things that die we will want to avoid death and as mm-hmm. soon as we cease being things that die we will seek out death
0: it's like the, the immortal that we read
1: yeah yeah it's dialectics baby
0: yeah dialectics which pinker thinks are stupid yeah so we are doing oh you want to
1: get started yeah let's get started yeah all right hello everybody and welcome back to episode five i think five we five we just exactly released that. three because i'm lazy and haven't haven't edited four yet but that should be out in the near future well a week or so before you hear this mm-hmm. god that's funny that's weird how time works like that isn't it but Ooh. anyways we're talking again about stephen pinker's enlightenment now we last week talked about the first section the first three chapters where he talks about the enlightenment and this week we're talking about his section the first part's the, the first six chapters of his part two on progress. Mm-hmm.
0: We got progressophobia, life, health, sustenance, and then wealth and inequality.
1: Yeah. Do you want to take this chapter by chapter or do you want to go big picture down to little picture?
0: Let's do like, we can, let's summarize each chapter and then
1: kind okay. of big picture, little picture. Okay. You want to get us started? Yeah, sure.
0: Do uh, so. Progressophobia is the first chapter. It covers chapter four, and in this, he just outlines why people are afraid to think that progress is an unqualified good thing. And he explains through psychological biases uh, and other sorts of errors in sort of our own cognition about why we're trying. We prioritize bad information over good information. And we assume bad things are more common. And this is just a sort of human error. And he argues that violence is declining. We're doing better. And all of the world is just a better place to live in.
1: He also blames the news a little bit.
0: Which I think is like actually kind of fair that they
1: just catastrophize Oh, yeah, no, everything. totally reasonable. But <laughs> he doesn't blame like the financial, si- if, I, if I'm correct, I don't think he blames like the financial system of profit making that like, no. He mostly sticks to psychology. I think
0: like the true crime article about how true crime is reactionary that you sent me
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is
0: like a really, I think he'd actually agree with that. I think he'd be like, yes, true crime puts forward a narrative that is fundamentally socially reactionary because it's an obsession with random isolated acts of violence. Mm,
1: In, well, now I like true crime.
0: just <laughs> the enlightenment, man.
1: Can't agree. Can't agree with Pinker. <laughs> no, I, there's, there's definitely something to this, but we can, we can come back through and get more into specifics.
0: Okay. Yeah. So then there's one. Chap-
1: yep. Chapter five is on life. And so what the way he sets it up is that he's going to explain, he explains in progressophobia, Oh, all these people don't mm-hmm. think progress is happening. And now let me just berate you with facts, capital T truth about how progress is a reality and each of the chapters that we've read after this are, well, the first four life, health, sustenance, and wealth are about these realities of progress that we've achieved. And then inequality is kind of a way to respond to a criticism. Yeah. And life basically just shows increases in average life expectancy, which are mostly brought about by reductions in child mortality and mothers and. Uh, childbearing Mm -hmm. and some improved ability to treat pathogens although that's a little ironic to talk about at the moment although you know the the vaccines are are good you should get vaccinated our listener i'm pretty sure our listener is vaccinated
0: i would hope
1: (laughs) one one would hope and then a weird reflection on immortality at the end of this chapter i believe
0: yeah we can come back to that one at the end so then we for sure we go on to, I believe it's sustenance.
1: Health. health is Sorry my
0: that. Health. Yeah. We are just healthier now. We have better public sanitation. We have sewage systems that work. And I, I think that it's, it, is, it is sort of important to remember the small miracle that is the fact that we all have running water and sewage that works. Yep. Considering the fact that, like, I think I had grandparents who didn't have running water. Like that, so it's cool. Then,
1: sustenance is talking about food, uh, mm-hmm. the reductions in the amount of people that starve to death, general increases in the amount of calories consumed per day, which is a thing you know happening in the developed world to use a that nomer, yeah. um, and then also recently happening in China and in India, and those are the kind of the big places. increasing it across the world and yeah just kind of reducing the amount of children who don't get enough calories to fully develop Mm -hmm. and are malnourished and then some kind of reflections on thomas malthus and why he was wrong i guess oh and the the green revolution which we can definitely talk about definitely going to talk about he
0: really deflates criticisms of the green revolution he doesn't present any serious kind oh of we're
1: thing. gonna have some words for norman borlag
0: okay <laughs>
1: <which> I, <laughs> Again. I think borlag is just a very good bond villain name
0: it is just to be clear to our re- our listener people having food is good but there are complicated structural issues that he ignores and how these things play out absolutely then we move on to wealth and this he sort somewhat of somewhat
1: disappointing that sustenance breaks up the health wealth rhyme, but it's okay. A, a better <laughs> author would have put them next to each other, but it's fine.
0: <laughs> wealth is basically just about how the post enlightenment world created wealth. We're wealthier. Now we have better things. We have more things. We have things like refrigerators, which nobody could have imagined before. And are kind of not even quantifiable in terms of value. Does to he define healthy. wealth
1: in this chapter? I think it's just like exchange value. It's just stuff.
0: Yeah, maybe.
1: It's most simply gross world product, right? The graph that he has on the second page, third page of the chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about the the great escape. So the general increase in incomes through the industrial revolution, Mm -hmm. 1750s to now big leap in income in England, in the Netherlands, and then spreading around the world more generally the great escape it's called and then recently happening in china and india as something that brings up world income so this is kind of just about the reduction of poverty which is a more complicated story than he tells but we can get into that later as well yeah <laughs> yep
0: there's there's no there's no there's no mention of uh colonialism or anything like that but we can we can address that later. Then we have inequality. In this section, to be honest, I'm actually not entirely sure his position on like social redistribution of wealth. It seems like, so he makes like two cases. that inequality is not inherently bad in and of itself and not necessarily reflective of some social, in and of, again, in and of itself is not reflective of a social malaise of any kind. Mm -hmm. but we have more redistribution policies and america specifically he tries to say we're actually better than we think we are on this point so like yeah we have social spending people are doing well yeah yeah i think that's a pretty good summary of what we've read so far yeah do we want to jump into the good the bad and the ugly sure I have some good. I mean, I thought some of his references to language were kind of cool and um, psychological biases towards negative stuff.
1: Anything you had in mind? Okay, so the, the, the psychological stuff is in the first chapter, chapter four.
0: Yeah, uh, progressophobia.
1: progressophobia. Any specific places for where he talked about language?
0: I think it's something about how the English language has more negative words than positive words, or words that convey negative emotions.
1: Mm, I remember something about you thinking if you were asked whether you think there's more words that start with K or have K as the third letter, you'd say the former, but it's the mm-hmm. latter by a lot. That's the only thing I really remember.
0: There's one that it's a. He says, as a psycholinguist, I am compelled to add that the English language has far more words for negative emotions than positive emotions.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: I thought that was kind of cool, and when he talks about the negativity bias in uh, memory, also thought that was interesting in the progressophobia section. So I think we both have this, you and I both share concerns about how news is reported as it sort of catastrophizes individual events at the sort of expense of a grand narrative that might be a little harder to digest, but is more reflective of the actual truth. Like true crime, I think, is something that the three of us, Pinker being with us, would agree is probably not a great way to examine the state of the world. It takes individual horrible anecdotes and tries to universalize those or people by their nature universalize those, which
1: I I thought was interesting. Yeah, I I mean, so broadly speaking, I would say the point that he's making in the four chapters, chapters five through Mm -hmm. eight, I guess, life, health, sustenance, and wealth yeah very broadly speaking is i think generally just kind of correct like there's a lot of data to back up the argument that life is better now for the average person on the world and the average person in a lot of countries than it was a while ago you know there are a lot of good things that have come out of technology you know it it, you know it's i i hesitate to ask that broad question because keeping it specific makes it more intelligible but like you know, there's there's the Rawlsian argument that he makes at some point. But like, if you ask like, would you rather have a toothache today or 300 years ago? And the answer is very obvious. Yeah. You would yes. you would rather have a toothache today? Would you rather have a headache? Like, there would you rather have like a an illness, a, a psychological disorder? There, there, are so many things where it's obviously better. And and making that point isn't, you know, it's not he's not wrong about that. The issues arise when. A, you make that point without a structural argument about the negative things that are also implicated in the creation of wealth, establishment of improved health yep. and life in certain places. And, you know, you know, we, we talk about, the, he talks about the undeveloped world. I'm using air quotes because it's, yeah, I, I don't necessarily love the language, mm-hmm. but the undeveloped world, catching up and there's a reason it has to catch up right like it's it's there's a reason you know so oh, those are happened? things we could that should what? be talked about what the happened
0: sec- in those couple hundred years yeah
1: though. yeah yeah and the second thing that's worth talking about is where the problem really starts to come in i think mm-hmm. is when you're using the evidence of certain measures of human welfare get, improving. In attributing them to a cause to like bolster points point. So like he hasn't done this work yet, but it's going to happen at some point, I presume. Mm. And that's when I'm going to have a lot of issues because these things aren't, broadly speaking, the ov- clear and obvious results of the Enlightenment.
0: Yeah. I, where exactly capitalism comes from in Europe is an incredibly complicated question that like, results in like questions of like debt financing in like the late middle ages and the early like net, um, commercial republics and like the Netherlands and stuff like that. It's like, it's not just some guy had an idea. These things sort of emerged spontaneously even before the enlightenment or like the rise of banking in Europe because the Vatican no longer banned it because I think they banned usury for a long time.
1: Yeah, no the the origins of capitalism have been highly debated by Marxists since Marx. You know, there's the E.P. Thompson, there's the Brenner debates, mm-hmm. there's a lot of good, you know. And I'm I'm generally partial to Wallerstein's, and he, he talks about uh, Francis Broad Broaddell. I'm not exactly sure I'm pronouncing his name, but he he's a historian who kind of pioneered the long durée historian form which is looking at very long durations and he, he looks at the development of the Mediterranean as like the kind of origins of capitalism in, in his early works. And, and Wallerstein does, does a similar project, mm-hmm. but they would have things to say about Pinker's project here. Cause he, he does get to a point, sorry, we're, I'm, I've totally lost the, tr- the plot on talking about the good. Um, <laughs> it was bound to happen. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He gets to the point where he starts talking about what this is attributable to, right? And he starts talking about free market economics, institutions, values. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's on, in my totally legally downloaded PDF of the book, it's on page 96 out of 655, but that's not the actual page in the book. He's asking what launched the Great Escape, and he talks about oh, yep. institutions,
0: Rule of law, private property, or some things, U.S.
1: Science, right? Yeah, science. What well launched the Great Escape, which is the creation. This is in Chapter 8, so it's wealth. What well launched, launched the increase in wealth, GDP. Number one is science. Number two is institutions. Number three was a change in values. And number four was, oh, I don't know if there was a number four.
0: I don't think that, was there a number four?
1: I don't. There might There might not have been a number four. You're right.
0: Yeah, so I think that's History, yeah, yep. that's what he lays out. You that's kind of that's this. kind of
1: the only place he's done any work on the connection between the Enlightenment and these things, right? Mm-hmm.
0: You know more about this stuff than I do, so I'll kind of defer to you on the like historical points of early capitalism. But
1: yeah, I mean it's it's complicated. We we don't have time to hash <laughs> that out. Maybe maybe we'll do a book like that for our next book.
0: That'd be fun, actually. Have you read Capital in the 21st Century?
1: by Piketty no yeah. I'm not have you I want to I really want I, to I, I do as well that's a long ass book though
0: yeah it's on my shelf it's one of those ones where I'm like I'm gonna read this this looks really uh, okay cool. but I guess like one of my issues was I agree it's unimpeachably true that I'd rather have a toothache now than 400 years ago I'd probably be dead 400 years ago I like I'm not a healthy true. person and He has a nice story of like an obvious teleological progression through history shown through data. But think about like the charts he doesn't have, which I know is a stupid thing to say at first. But what would wealth be now without the use of fossil fuels? We can't talk about wealth without talking about like increased energy production, which requires us talking about. Oh, the sea levels are rising, and we'd have to talk about that when we talk about progress. And Chapter 10
1: talk... is the environment, so I suspect we'll get into this conversation, Hopefully. but I, I am not hopeful that he will deal with it adequately.
0: I assume it's going to be a technological fix at some point down the road. Oh, It'll yeah, just... no,
1: Bill Gates is definitely going to be involved.
0: We can get into this, but one of my like most insane political views is like a deep distrust of any form of philanthropy.
1: I don't think that's insane.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're right. But the um
1: but I think I think that would definitely be a a niche view and and looked down upon by most people. Not a David Shore political view right there.
0: I don't want to don't want to we're not getting canceled we're not touching the shore debate.
1: <laughs> That's like we're, we're not getting canceled he says as he starts off the podcast by reading a fucking Carl Schmitt quote. Okay. Oh I,
0: David Shore is, like, licking the third rail of, like, Twitter. It's... it. I don't know why everybody has, like, a life or death... Of, okay, we're gonna talk about the ugly. I need to focus. focus.
1: Okay. It we, it we found some good, which is yeah. really... That's good enough. Let's yeah. talk ugly.
0: Yeah. I had, like, some stuff. Like, he doesn't include a ton of graphs about the rise in suicide rates, loneliness, social isolation, uh... Climate crisis, mass extinction. These are all parts of the story that he's excluding. Again, obviously for polemical reasons, but to not acknowledge the downside, it was like, I feel like your book would almost be a little bit better structurally if you're like, yes, these things are real, but much more early on because it's like this, the way it's structured now is almost kind of letting it build up to be like, how are you going to deal with this? And I've never written a book, so. You know, I
1: think you could write a better book than Steven Pinker.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, ugly.
0: Yeah. What do you got for ugly?
1: Well, let's just start it off. Let's just start it off with the, the first two sentences of chapter four.
0: Unacceptable. Awful. Those that's in bad for me. I can't.
1: That's in bad for you. Oh, it's that's, not ugly. This okay. is bad. This is bad. OK, It. I mean, it is bad, but I, I also thought it's just like it's it's not it's because it's like wrong but it's also just not even it's it's indicative of we can t- we'll talk about it in the bad then but he has a lot of statements i'll talk about the phenomena that i think is more ugly he has a lot of statements that are just broad mm-hmm. broad and polemical with no supporting citation no evidence for them he just kind of says them Yeah, you know, who does he say- i don't know sometimes it's like it's like if I was reading an author I liked and they just made kind of jokey statements, like I might enjoy them. But when I don't like you, these statements just piss me off. And they're wrong. They're, they're stupid and wrong a lot of the time.
0: Yeah, the first sentence, just so the uh, listeners know, of chapter four is, intellectuals hate progress. Intellectuals who call themselves progressive really hate progress. No citation. I have no idea who he's talking about or what that He doesn't define that until later on. And he seems to include this like, nebulous group of everyone from adorno to heidegger and he his citation for that is um
1: arthur herman's the idea of decline in western history which apparently he says shows that prophets of doom are the all-stars of the liberal arts curriculum including this is an insane list of people Mm -hmm. nietzsche arthur schopenhauer martin heidegger theodore adorno that's just disrespectful Okay, first to put Heidegger and then Adorno right next to each other as if they're the same. But, anyways, moving moving on. Walter Ben, that's anti Semitic, actually. Um, Walter Benjamin, Herbert Marcuse, Jean Paul Sartre, Frantz Fanon, Michael- Michel Foucault, Edward Said, Cornel West, and a chorus of eco pessimists.
0: I have a lot of opinions about a lot of those authors, some of whom I hate and others I think are brilliant, but you need to like, have citations more than just one book if you're going to make a claim mm-hmm. about like the entirety of modern thoughts
1: like this And the worst part of all this this is we're, we're at this point we are thoroughly in the bad but yes. it's fine i didn't have a lot of ugly the next the worst part of this is the next paragraph he's completely moved on this is not a this isn't an important point to this chapter
0: the, the point man is a chapter... harvard professor and is like literally just like saying professors are stupid
1: the point he's making is about the average human being. He's, mm-hmm. he's he's writing a book for a normal human being about like an average American, about average Americans being, in this section is about average Americans being, about, thinking progress doesn't occur. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about social psychology in the rest of the chapter. And it's not even bad. He's talking about news. He's talking about pessimism. But yes. he just decides he needs to be polemical about leftist or rightist intellectuals and a bunch of important philosophers and thinkers
0: I think the second half of the chapter is actually interesting at parts it's good it has its merits and if you just focused on that it'd be so much better it's like I don't know do you know any undergrads who've read Heidegger other than like me and like two other philosophy nerds who you're friends with no like nobody reads this nobody does the reading in these classes it's like so I think it almost takes away from the story he's trying to tell. It would have been it's better. It's really,
1: he... it's like that part is scarily close to like James Lindsay, Lindsay talking about cultural Marxism.
0: God. Like, right.
1: It's, it I is though. Want to is... Say that, but
0: yeah. Yeah. And again, like deflating all of these critics into just this is, I don't know. I, I, I think it's, not a good service for the book overall.
1: Because
0: mm-hmm. it's like, I mean, like, what did um, just like pull two randomly? What did Marcuse and Nietzsche have in common? Well, there's that kind of like creative humanism to Marcuse that's kind of vaguely Heideggerian or Nietzschean. But he's like a Marxist. And... Anywho, I don't know. Do you want to go into oh, the bad? I'll
1: give you another ugly. I'll give you another ugly. Okay,
0: you got another ugly?
1: I think there needs to be a lot. A lot of the graphs that he's using to make points use kind of complex economic data that needs to be better explained and contextualized mm-hmm. because they can be liable to kind of manipulation or telling a story that isn't actually the story you think you're being told. And I don't he I think he does that a few times, and I, I get suspicious of those sometimes but generally speaking giving more information on some of this data that you're using would would be i would appreciate it
0: mm. i think that's fair i don't really have any more ugly um guess i kind of like the first chapter other than the sort of like Nietzsche mark yeah. stuff it was like i don't you don't need this it was interesting but in the ugly or the bad i guess my biggest thing was I'm just not clear who he's arguing against a lot
1: of the time. Repeatedly, yep. He doesn't want to name names.
0: Because sometimes it's like when I'll say something, it's like, "Eh, I could see an undergrad saying something like this and you being like, oh, why would you say that? That's wrong. But I don't know. It just seems very um, straw man-y. Yeah. Like there's a thing where it's like, he has like this like italics isn't internet trolling a form of violence isn't strip mining a form of violence isn't inequality a form of violence isn't pollution a form of violence isn't poverty a form of violence isn't blah com- blah 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 blah. And it's like you need to break that up because the internet trolling is a form of violence. What is tr- What does that mean Because sometimes it can be violent and abusive and other times it can just be like toughen up strip mining is that a form of violence? I mean, like, if you're an indigenous community and you're having your land taken away, yeah, it is. Pollution? Yeah, where does he talk
1: about violence? Which chapter is that?
0: This is in Progressophobia. It's in italics. um, Oh, okay. And he talks about, like, metaphors, and it's like, you need to sort of break up this criticism that you're doing. We we
1: haven't gotten into the violence chapters yet, I think, but I think he's coming up with, like, terrorism and are coming up so we can get into more detail on that but yeah they're they're more complex questions mm-hmm.
0: like i think in every chapter i have at least like who's who is he arguing against written down at least once in the margins of every chapter that we read today do you have a another bad
1: yeah so i'll yeah i think the worst thing is he hasn't actually advanced his thesis that the Enlightenment is responsible for these things you know a lot of the data starts either well after the enlightenment or or whatever Mm -hmm. and he just hasn't really made the argument that the enlightenment is responsible for these things probably in part because i think that's an argument that can't actually be made so yeah in, in his wealth chapter he has the explanation of the great escape which he attributes to institutions science and values which i guess you could you you can say is caused by the enlightenment like he says science is part of the enlightenment which doesn't actually make any sense but it's fine if we if we say the enlightenment means science institutions we have economic institutions right like the rule of law property rights mm-hmm. enforceable contracts and, and banks and all that, that so just economic institutions that kind of keep the peace and allow for free exchange he's big on free markets and then and then he talks about values the value being like pro exchange generally um which i don't know you sure if you want to say these are enlightenment values it's fine but it's like you have to actually prove that because the enlightenment is just so broad a thing right so the 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 threads he's trying to make are there but they're just not well developed enough and i think they're wrong in a lot of compelling ways because as we talked about last episode the enlightenment in some ways is contradictory
0: i in general I have, I have a hard time attributing these sort of changes on the ground in how we produce goods and production in general to some dude writing a book yeah i acknowledge that's possible but i am always just a little bit
1: mm, come join these the materialists
0: we uh, have no <laughs> I can't do it. I can't. I can't bite that bullet. But yeah, I just would like a bit more evidence to explain how this exactly
1: works. Yeah, I think. I think what we're gonna discover is that for Pinker, and we kind of already have talked about, it, is that the Enlightenment just isn't a coherent thing in the way that he tells it. It's not. It is simultaneously the ideas like a, a movement, a social movement involving real people, and it's also like unembodied ideas
0: but it's like all the good things
1: yeah it's begging the question right because it's like well what is the enlightenment responsible for oh all the good things well what about these bad things oh it couldn't have been enlightenment ideals like the holocaust is uh anti-irrational of course you know it's i'm sure but then continuing along this thread later in the chapter on wealth he says what is the world doing right and of course, the first thing that the world is doing right is the decline of communism in China and uh, in, in opening up free markets and whatnot. That's great. And then he uses the, you know, cringe freshman seminar example of look at the lighting from North Korea to South Korea. ha 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 ha. ha. And then the second is leadership. The third is the end of the Cold War and the fourth is globalization. All of those are things leading to the great convergence. The coming, So the great escape is when the Western countries develop and make a bunch of money and increase their income by a lot. And the great convergence is when all the developing countries follow suit and start increasing their wealth. And it's because of, most importantly, a commitment to free market economics, And somewhat involvement of science and values and leadership and globalization.
0: Again, I think it's important that we acknowledge... I'm in favor of a lot of the things he's in favor of, generally, in some general sense, I guess. But... that's not so
1: enthusiastic.
0: Yeah, I'm very he presents it in such an unreservedly good light that it's like hard to buy into for me at points because it's like these things aren't unqualified goods in the way you're presenting them. Cause I think, yeah. I think we can talk about, do you want to jump into the green revolution section? Yeah, sure. So again, it's a pretty much, I think unqualified good thing that people have food.
1: Yeah. You know, let's just give a quick background. So do you want, you can go ahead. I've talked too much already.
0: Yeah. So the green revolution occurred roughly in the mid 1900s uh, where farming techniques all over the world, but specifically in certain regions like India and Africa had this huge, huge expansion and we were able to produce way more food than we'd ever had in human history. And we were able to feed a much, much larger population without the sort of Malthusian catastrophe of overpopulation threatening us. And Pinker presents this as an unqualified good thing. And again, people having food is a good thing, but the Green Revolution itself is a very complicated phenomenon that transformed local social relations. It depleted soil in various regions. It's good that people can eat, but it's not the perfect thing that he's portraying it as. Do you have a thought on that?
1: Yeah, so Norman Borlaug was an agro- economist or an agronomist.
0: Agronomist.
1: Agronomist. He developed a new seed variety that was higher yield and better for farming. I think it was of was it corn? No, it was was wheat. wheat. It was wheat. Wheat. He Mm -hmm. first took off in Mexico and then was used in India and other parts of the world. And it increased development, but here's the thing to use it you needed to a be able to purchase the seed varieties. Mm which were more expensive than regular seeds because they had work put into them. And B, you need to be able to purchase the additional inputs that were required for this type of seed, including expensive patented fertilizers also made in the United States. The fertilizer was there so that you could farm every year instead of, or, you know, farm the same thing every year instead of doing crop rotation to increase yields. But that does, You know, harm the soil. Mm -hmm. Dude, I think like nitrogen loss in the soil, I'm not 100% sure on the chemistry, but then you need to buy more fertilizer over time. Yep. Because the soil gets depleted. So actually, it ends up yields increase, but yields increase as farming gets centralized under the control of the large farms and small farmers end up turning into basically wage laborers who work on the farms and then they are replaced by machines and that creates lots of problems. Borlag didn't see them as a problem. He thought that the small farmer was a conundrum that had to be dealt with. It, It was dealt with, and it was not necessarily dealt with in a productive way.
0: I think we're talking about this like phenomenon in economics called creative destruction, basically, where When new technologies emerge and markets change and the structure of production changes, there's a lot of destruction of pre-existing social structure and the creation of something new. And in many cases, Pinker just sort of ignores the part of the destruction we're talking about. Where wives were overturned, the production was changed and a lot of people lost their livelihood and jobs. And he'd say, well, in the long run, we're good. But I don't know if that would provide a ton of consolation to the people that we're talking about here. Because I know there's like, rafts of suicides in india uh, among small farmers who are basically in like debt prison debt traps from buying fertilizer to feed their plants and so on and so on so there's there's a lot of problems there's problem so this is a thing that i think shows up in the book a lot where he'll talk about progress and how great it was and again it's good that people have food but the failures in that destruction of the pre-existing social fabric and the sort of problems that are left unaddressed i don't know what he thinks we should do with them
1: there's no discussion of like the fact that the pro- part of the problem is also where like where's the food grown like if mm-hmm. why are these places why does india grow a lot of wheat and cotton and other staple crops huh you know it's like it's, it's just you know, it's because the British took over and then they they said, oh, if you guys want to import or if you guys want to export manufactured products to Britain, there's going to be a 70 percent tariff on those products. If you want to import, uh, export raw cotton to Britain, there's going to be no tariff on those products. So oh, I wonder what people are going to try to export to Britain. OK, they're going to try to export cotton. And so there's no discussion of the fact that the reason there's a lot of farmland in these places to to make these raw materials that you know are less valuable than the finished materials is because of colonialism and the remaking of these economies and how continuing down this road we i could go on and on it's but yeah that 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 discussion is not talked about the green
0: i think the green revolution is emblematic of the of one of the big problems i have in the book where there's the, there's the good thing where people can eat more, but he divorces it from the context that it occurred in, which is involves the reproduction of colonial social and economic hierarchies and the expansion of modern like debt, um, pre- modern capital uh, and their sort of hold on small Indian farmers through debt and all these other negative social factors. And it's, I'm just left wondering, what is his answer to that? Does he yeah. just think it'll just get better in the long run? And it's like, well, no, he says that's not possible. But I, I think that the point is with the, also with the Green Revolution is he doesn't take up the actual serious criticisms at any point. He He just says the obviously good thing that we all agree is good. But nobody is disagreeing with that premise. At no point have I ever met anybody that's like more children should starve. The people who I know who are critical of the Green Revolution are like, Well, it depletes soil, requires debt, and is a reproduction of colonial power.
1: I think Heidegger might have been in favor of more children starving.
0: Yeah, we don't, if you're basing your morality off what Heidegger thought, we should probably stop doing the podcast.
1: (laughs) I am, I don't think I am, no. But yeah, I mean, have you read uh, Mike Davis's Late Victorian Holocausts?
0: No, would you recommend it?
1: Yeah, it's a good book. He talks about, the the or the famines actually that were brought about by the british in india in the late the latter half of the 19th century Mm -hmm. and it's kind of a a counter example of this where globalization was really bad for the indian people because it meant that there was a bunch of railroads built in india Mm -hmm. so that the british could take the wheat that was produced and they could ship it to ports and then you know or take it by train to ports and then ship it to england well, the Indian people didn't actually have enough to eat. So, you know, and that resulted in the deaths of and, and Pinker touches on colonialism briefly at certain points. But at, at sometimes it's shocking his callousness like here, for example, is a, a sentence. Sub-Saharan Africa has been this is in the sustenance chapter. Yeah. Sub-Saharan Africa has been cursed by nature with thin soil, capricious rainfall and a paucity of harbors and navigable rivers. And it never developed an extensive network of roads, rails, or canals. And it's like, why Why do you think that is? He, he needs to make the next connection a lot of the times. And he just never does it. Yeah. Because it would I, harm his narrative.
0: I think that's really... Because this was the thing I was wondering about reading the stuff on wealth and um, stuff on nourishment. The entire time I was reading a, stuff, a section on wealth, I was wondering, well... Why was part of the world so far behind Europe? What do you think happened? The thing I was thinking about was like the Opium Wars, where England had a trade deficit with China, so they made uh, the Chinese government let, like let them sell opium in the country.
1: Yeah, I, these are not.
0: And again, it might be. Tr- it's it's probably yeah, he's, true. He's, cer- about he's some certainly in Africa.
1: He's aware of a lot of different thing bad things but he's certainly tilting towards blaming communism for like most of the bad things. And again a lot of a lot of famines are blamed on communism and in again I'm not personally a stalinist I don't know about you so I think stalin was bad.
0: Yeah. But tank. I
1: also think that colonialism was bad and U.S. imperialism during the Cold War was bad. Mm Hmm.
0: Yeah. Hot take. Bad things are bad.
1: We can get more into the. This is this is going on too. I have a feeling that we're going to be able to talk for a very long time whenever we do our episodes about this book.
0: Yeah, I think we. I am comfortable just continuing to go on, but but
1: to to get into some of the specifics. Yeah. So like the graph where he talks about wealth in the first. Uh, in the, the third page of the wealth chapter so there's yeah. this this graph that just goes like this it's just a flat line across and then it goes straight up at the end to yeah you know yeah yeah to show dollars in trillions to make the point of like oh my goodness look at this crazy stuff mm-hmm. it's just like really what what is this graph even what is what could it possibly be saying to me like we have more money. y'all, re- y'all really know what life was like how much wealth there was in the world in international dollars when Jesus was walking around on the planet. I was kind of
0: skeptical of how you measure that. I didn't, is there, because I was reading a uh, LA review of books article about this and they brought up this specific graph and they're like, how did he get the, the data for this? Just isn't, doesn't exist.
1: We could have a conversation with Max Roser. Who's the, R world and data guy. Are you familiar with Jason Hickel?
0: Yeah. The name's familiar. What's yeah, their... he's
1: the degrow the main degrowth guy. They had a big spat on Twitter that looked like oh, it got man. really personal a while ago. I didn't yeah. really read about it, but it looked very funny and sort of made me feel like, oh, guys, come on, take it, take it, take it off, you know, the public Internet. But anyways, I don't understand. Maybe I'm maybe I'm too lazy to actually investigate this, but I have no idea what the bank is, what the World Bank is doing to calculate these figures, figures for a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand years ago, and how you can even reasonably like, I, what does it even mean? Pinker's like always talking about how we have goods these people can't even have conceived of. That's so a better argument
0: that, in this graph. Even
1: even if you try to measure our dollars to their dollars, it doesn't even matter. But it's also like, yeah, but they got for free a lot of stuff we have to pay for. Like, if you wanted to, like, go on a camping trip to some place on, like, I don't, I don't know, like, some place in Africa, you wanted to go on a safari trip mm-hmm. to some place in Africa, for hundreds of thousands, not hundreds of thousands, for tens of thousands a year, humans could do that for free. They just lived there, man. That's going to cost you, like, $15,000 for that vacation, and they could do that for free on a Tuesday. I don't know. I mean, like.
0: Yeah, the financialization of just everything hangs over our lives and is just not part of the book at all.
1: There are commodities yeah. that you have to pay for now that people didn't have to pay for before. There are also things that don't exist, but they, the fact that they've been commodified. So it's it is hard for me to trust this attempt to calculate wealth like this because really I think it just refers to... My, I'm, my economics isn't strong enough to speculate this on this, but I'm going to do it anyways. It seems no, to me like it. it's just a measure of circulation, mm. like the fact that more stuff moves around, mm-hmm. and happens, and and gets processed, and and wealth gets added to it.
0: Yeah, there's just something kind of at face value not trustworthy about this measurement, though. I don't have to be an economist to just be like, how did you? measure this i'm sure smart people have thought about this but how does that work
1: a more compelling graph would be energy Mm. an energy usage graph because that tells a similar story but i mean you 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 have some of the issues same issues with comparison and in terms of how how reliable is your historical data yeah but i think you have less worries about you know how much how Good is your con- your conversion metric.
0: Yeah, how do you isolate what a Roman like dinar could buy you relative to what a dollar can buy you, and calculate out from yeah. there?
1: And the, the, bringing up Rome is a good example of how some of these other points don't make any sense, right? Like the health one. The Romans improved on health a lot by inventing the aqueduct system to get fresh water to people and improving, getting rid of a lot of the issues with cities.
0: Yeah, Rome had a decent public health system, and again. I'm so happy I don't live in, like, streets filled with shit uh, and, like, horses shitting everywhere. Yeah. It's great. I love it. But I the stuff about, like, sanitation I found to be pretty un- unobjectionable. Mm-hmm. That just seems good to me.
1: Well, except for the part where he wants us to, like, worship biologists, but we should make, <laughs> we should make fun of them like the nerds they are. But anyways.
0: Agreed. The way he seems to want to I want to see if I had anything I wanted to bring up on this. The I think some of the interesting stuff about health is and long and longevity is so, for example, Thomas Hobbes died at the age of 91. I'd be lucky to live to that now. So we're talking about a sort of, and he's he's pretty upfront about this, but it's uh infant mortality is down and We're just kind of bringing the average up. We have an extended human life; it's just on average a bit longer, which is fine. I think that's kind of interesting because he does acknowledge that, but
1: and it's probably higher quality in terms mm. of healthiness during it.
0: True. Yeah, we're not like Henry VIII, who's like constant. Was Henry VIII one of those kings of like this like constant open sore?
1: I mean, he brought down he brought down life expectancy in Britain, uh, but, but that was had nothing to do with himself and more to do with his wives. But anyways.
0: There's a section I want to like bring up because I think it's one of the like most remarkable things that he has to say. And I don't think he like unpacks its implications. It's in the uh, wealth section. He says something along the lines of that the enlightenment and modern industrial capitalism has replaced the salvation of your soul with questions of pragmatic, pragmatically good things. And I read that and I was kind of baffled by it because isn't that precisely the reactionary criticism of the Enlightenment that he doesn't really try to take head on that this is the case? I mean, the sections I read from Carl Schmitt are precisely this, that the Enlightenment bracketed the things that matter. And Leo Strauss takes this, not in the same direction that Schmidt does, but his point is like, Modernity and modern thinkers actually can't address these questions; that they fail to disprove the notion of salvation on its own terms, so they resort to mockery and deflating the notion of what is good in order to achieve a political project. And I don't know; it just seems like Pinker doesn't have an answer to these guys. That I think
1: Pinker actually makes it worse on that front because he mischaracterizes the Enlightenment as blatantly atheistic no I I, I think
0: he is aware that there's the deistic component of the enlightenment but yeah
1: well he's bracketing that for sure
0: yeah he might kind of like what the enlightenment thinkers thought was like worthwhile moral questions is like such a fraught debate because they all hated themselves hated themselves and each other for complicated reasons so to just say his quote is The Enlightenment thus translated the ultimate question, how can I be saved into the pragmatic question, how can I be happy? Did they do that? Who did that? Which thinkers did that? And again, this is the reactionary criticism of the Enlightenment that Pinker I don't think, is interested in because it's, I I just don't know because I, I don't think you can understand the like, alternative
1: well, my basic hypothesis would be that Pinker is himself a right-wing reactionary, so he's actually sympathetic to that and doesn't care and is just using this as a the Enlightenment as a tool to bash leftist critics. But uh, I don't know if I have the evidence at this point to support that thesis. So
0: you're just alleging it.
1: Yeah, no, no. Allegedly. That's uh, what people have been saying.
0: Yeah. OK. That's allegedly the case.
1: Yeah. 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 Editor's note. It is the official view of the Hard Obscurantism podcast and all of its founding members that Steven Pinker is an upstanding intellectual committed to the unbiased pursuit of knowledge and previous statements should not be understood as suggesting anything else.
0: That, that, that section just sort of jumped out at me. and That's why I read Schmidt in the beginning, because one could easily imagine this inverted. I think I remember even Patrick Deneen saying something along these lines that the Enlightenment and whatever modernity is and its moral project is a failure because it asks, how can I be happy instead of how I can be saved? And there's this sort of just this question of why? Why is it normatively good to do one over the other? I don't know. I don't, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Revelation. I don't believe in any of that stuff. But it's just, it's so open to like any type of serious reactionary criticism. Yeah. Because sometimes it feels like this is more as a book directed at his, even though he mentions Trump, it's more directed at, like, annoying undergrads than the actual, like, blood and soil nationalists.
1: Yeah. It's not... Yeah, I don't know.
0: Is that, like, insane for me to think?
1: No, I don't think it's insane. I mean, this is... I think part of the problem is that, like, Picker wants to come off as a dark web intellectual dark web figure who's like going against the grain here and he might be because he's widely criticized in academia by you know the generally left-leaning academics mm-hmm. who populate it but most i think it's more so just because he's an idiot but I, that's you know that's not the point he's just not actually that controversial to most people like i think the vast majority of like americans would just read this and agree with most of it like i don't know it's, Yeah. it's I think he just has to do a lot of work to make himself seem the victim of or seem controversial here in a way that these ideas are actually it's like Gladwell right just carrying water for the establishment Mm -hmm. ideal while suggesting you're engaging in some like radical activity that you're not doing
0: yeah that's a that's a good way to put it because he tries to like frame this book as like a cut against the orthodoxy but it is the most status quo thing i've read in years yeah it's we're doing the right things guys all of the things we're doing are right
1: what and is good I, what is good as science what is good as free market economics what is good as leadership
0: that's the last that's just like everything we've been doing
1: no this is not controversial yeah the, there's so- the reason it's bill gates his favorite book right <laughs> That's, but, anyways.
0: <laughs> yeah, okay. We need I to wanted,
1: talk about chapter nine.
0: Inequality. This chapter was the one I was like, I can't, I can't get behind this. The other ones I could find stuff where I was like, Yes, I agree with you. This is this one was hard for me.
1: What do you think? It's I think this is an interesting argument. There's room here to have a conversation. What do you think about his argument that inequality isn't a social bad in and of itself or a moral hazard
0: so he cites a princeton philosopher on this point who i understand have done very good work and i'm not going to talk about their book that he brings up but one could make the argument that inequality as such is bad in a more complicated way because because i think that like the sort of criticisms uh, of like modern capitalism from I think uh, Rousseau or Agnes Heller who are like very different thinkers but like Heller would be like yeah there's a social division of labor because of inequality that results in like people's needs not being met because of the amount of time spent managing and working or Rousseau would say it creates some sort of like existential dread because you have all this wealth that you have to like have this like love of things that prevents you from being authentically happy. So yeah, there are arguments that it can be intrinsically bad. What do you think?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, a book I read a while ago, it's called fear of small numbers by Arjun Apidure, Mm -hmm. where the argument is basically that there's a problem between the economic system and the political system of like modernity mm-hmm. conflict because the economic system allows wealth to be concentrated through inequality in, you know, it, the economic system leads to inequality of the free market economic system creates inequality. Yeah. And the political system, democracy is about equality. And when those two come into contradiction, it can result in in violence and problems. And and I don't remember it exactly, but that's kind of the conceit. And I think that's, that is where one could argue Mm -hmm. that economic inequality is a social bad in and of itself because it conflicts with the democratic ideal of equality, Mm. because not just in terms of, Buying votes, which Pinker talks about, but in a more a broad sense of perhaps democracy. Democracy is about more than just the voting system. It's about the relationship between an individual and their share of power in society. Maybe you could develop some something along these lines, Hmm. where their their share. Yeah, you know their share of power, and if power is both political and economic, then the but you think you conceive a democracy more broadly, then the economic inequality is a problem in and of itself.
0: I think he would probably say something along the lines of, well, you're making like, a, you're conflating it because in and of itself, inequality doesn't result in differences in political power. And I think he tried to be like, well, you can silo these things off from one another just by doing what we're doing now or like more campaign finance regulation."
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I would I would support more campaign fine regulation, finance regulation. Mm-hmm. Of course. I think. Uh, I think inequality is a broader problem than he's giving it credit for. But I don't know. I yeah. I would have to, I would have to do more thinking and, and reading on the subject. I'm sympathetic to the idea that inequality is in some sense not the best place to focus on.
0: I'd agree with that on some level because I think part of what we'd have to talk about when we talk about inequality is. I don't necessarily think it's the biggest problem because n- needs are unequal. So they'll inevitably be like an unequal, like distribution of like resources, even under a sort of Marxist economy.
1: Yeah.
0: Which again, not a Marxist, but I think that's even like included in like the notions of like higher level Marxist thinkers that egalitarianism as such is not the goal.
1: Well, for Marxism, I think the biggest thing is that class is conceived of entirely differently as mm-hmm. a, binary between the proletariat and the bourgeois it's your the capitalist class and the worker class it's your relationship to the means of production so thinking about like economic inequality of like as a social stratification thing isn't even really the level that they operate on when they understand class and I'm, i'm kind of sympathetic to that
0: yeah i think that's probably a more close to the money but can we talk about like inequality in america without talking about um Basically, you can call like rentier uh, capitalism, I guess, where there's like regulatory capture and the monopolization of political and legal power or the inequality in like how prosecutions play out. And
1: no, you can't.
0: You can't I, like it, it just kind of is like, well, would people be as wealthy now if we didn't have these political structures? No, probably not. So wealth is kind of a political question. I think you. I'm. I think we're kind of in agreement that it might not be the point of a political project, but I think it's important to keep in mind.
1: There's also, I know you're not a Marxist, but if you were to take a more Marxist perspective, it would change your it change your view of this, I think, in a in a big way. Because if you conceive of wealth as being created through labor mm-hmm. and the capitalist abstracts a certain portion, so the worker goes to work, they produce a product that is then sold, they get a proportion of they are responsible for all of the value because they did all the labor in that, in that product, but they only get a proportion of it back. And the capitalist gets some proportion, they get some proportion. And so in that, in that model, which is oversimplified, but in that model, it becomes it's zero sum. Wealth becomes zero sum, you know, in a more compelling way than Pinker wants to think about it as like, like positive, a positive sum game. So like, you can make more money and your, your employer can make more money It still is. Yeah. But in the sense that like your employer, if your employer makes more money, you're making less money.
0: I think he called that the lump fallacy at one point.
1: Yeah. I, I don't think, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I remember him saying that. I don't know exactly where he says that, but I think there's room to be more critical of his perspective on, on this.
0: This is the, 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 the I wanted to talk about the section where he talks about how Thomas Piketty or Piketty is doing the lump fallacy because yeah, I think he I think you're right that he he thinks that people think that inequality is a like a zero sum game. And I think it sort of brings up two questions and he accuses Piketty of doing the lump okay, fallacy. Adrian. I'm on for me uh, 98. OK. Yeah. He talks about Piketty who wrote Capital in the 21st century, which cards on the table haven't read. But Piketty's argument, as I understand it, is that we live in a peculiar era of capitalism where there's a structural issue with return on investment versus labor production, I think, or something along those lines. So his argument is that I think, and I'm probably going to be wrong on this because I'm not an economist, but that. Growth now is uneven. You could have a world of socially useful growth, but now there's a failure of the modern capital society to produce such a growth. And his example is like the golden era of capitalism from 45 to 70, when there was like a solid middle-class had growth that's socially useful. Whereas now there's like other issues with like how the pie is distributed that benefit entrenched wealth classes.
1: Yeah, but just insisting that, okay, we can make the pie bigger and everybody will increase at the same time does not, can't abstract away from the fact that in the worker employee relationship, there is a percentage of the money that's going to the employer and a percent of as profit and a percentage that's going to the worker as wages yeah. and the change in that percentage, you know, changes their well-being. Or
0: This is the part, even Adam Smith, who I think it's a really bad rap, Adam Smith, thought that a virtuous capitalist didn't make a huge profit margin. A yeah. good capitalist invested back into the company and their workers. If you had a lot of profit, you are a bad capitalist, he thought. Because <laughs> you're a bad person. Yeah. So he kind of uses, I think, Adam Smith at one point to like like, prop up his argument. It's like, Adam Smith thought that like runaway profits were bad. <laughs> The inequality section, I found his argument was kind of interesting, but it was. I had a lot of issues with it, because another thing is he takes this—he talks about Engel's theory of primitive communism for me on page 102. He points out how this isn't like naturally true anymore. We don't think this is how nature looked at the time. Yep. And I guess I'm just thinking. What is that? mean what what does he want the takeaway to be of that
1: david graber yeah has good work on this front
0: oh he's smart
1: he's an an anarchist though so he his is he's really anti inequality as a discourse because he sees in a inequality discourse as a way to like increase the government and Mm -hmm. do more technocratic fixes but that that's something to look into it's he's he's got an interesting perspective but basically yeah my understanding is that this rousseauian narrative is wrong but it's it's mostly wrong because humans lived in much more complex Mm -hmm. and interesting ways for all of human history
0: yeah i think that's right we know that now that like there were social inequalities and of material goods and social power before like the rise of modern states and capitalism and even like the old priestly kingdoms in mesopotamia but I think it's just true, but I don't know what the point of like we're supposed to take away from it. Does that mean Engels was wrong? I guess. Kind of about one thing, but not about everything, as far as we know. Did yeah. you have anything you want to say about the uh, inequality section? That
1: Yeah, I, I have some. So one issue he does is he loves to, again, not an economist, not sure if this is standard, but he loves to kind of just play around with absolute versus relative measures Mm. to get out of some problems. So he talks about how Mm. the difference between how relative or absolute prosperity is what's important. Right. So it's, it's not about how much money you make relative to other people. It's not like your percent in the income bracket. It's just how much money you have in comparison to like prices. Yeah. But, when he's measuring inequality, he's using Gini coefficients, which are a relative measure of inequality. So for example, if like there was a country where the average wage was for like a year, the average wage was like a dollar per day. Mm-hmm. And then it, the next year it increased to $2 per day would be considered proportional to an increase from like a country having a $10,000 per day doubling to $20,000 per Mm -hmm. day. So if the relative, why are we using a relative measure of inequality if the relative prosperity is what matters? Because $20,000 can buy you a lot. You know, you can buy a lot more goats with $20,000 compared to $10,000 than you can with. I mean, I guess you can buy double, but like the the number is bigger. Like that's just a yeah. lot more, that's a lot of goats compared to the difference between two to one dollars a day. So you kinda of, I think he's doing a little bit of having his cake and eating it too, with this yeah. switching between relative and absolute measures here with the genie coefficient.
0: Can I read a, a sentence that uh, made me uh filled with rage? It filled me with yes, rage. please do. Those who condemn modern capitalist societies for callousness towards the poor are probably unaware of how little the pre-capitalist societies of the past spent on poor relief.
1: No, no, I think they are.
0: I think everyone alive right now realizes how terrible it was to be alive in that era.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely some romantics out there who aren't, but like, I mean, that's one of the main criticisms from post-colonialists kind of of Marx is his vulgar, developmentalism of his Mm -hmm. belief in you know kind of progress which lessens over time the later marx is less rah-rah about his teleology of history but you know there's definitely you know even in the marxist tradition a lot of awareness of how much life sucked and how much better it has gotten still with the desire to make improve it
0: marxism literally says i think the teaching is that modern capitalism is an improvement over feudalism. it was for a moment more equal and better
1: yeah no no marx was definitely communist manifesto pretty sure is and capitalism is better than yeah 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 no
0: so it's it's one of those i thought that was the sort of peak of who are you arguing against who's the enemy that you're like swatting at here what's the what's the point of this rhetorical flourish because i know literally no one who is Outside of some weird psychotic anarchists on Twitter, I don't know anyone who's described by this.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I hesitate to make the argument of no one says this because there's always somebody stupid saying it. Mm -hmm. But if you don't name the people, then we don't realize that you're arguing against an idiot. And we conceive of this argument as something held by the broad reality of your opponents when it's really a very niche perspective. And, you know, he's more rah-rah about GDP as a measure of prosperity than I would be. I think that's the strength of the degrowth movement is criticizing GDP as a measure of prosperity, and Mm -hmm. Pinker's more than happy to use it. Also, as far as I am aware, there's no empirical evidence to support the fact that the Kuznets curve is a real thing in any measure. It's just kind of a thing he made up. And then disavowed at a later point in time, I'm pretty sure. And so I don't know why we're using it.
0: I did not know that. That's actually very interesting.
1: It, if it's correct, it's not a model for all societies at all points in time.
0: Okay. Do you have anything else you want to add? Or do you want to zoom out and just talk about the book as a whole real quick?
1: Yeah, we can. you can sum up with whatever. I think there. I could go on forever but i have to edit this so right. i don't want to do that
0: yeah so i guess the two strands that i've found
1: oh oh Ooh, yeah. one last oh, comment yeah. on the inequality okay. section go for it first page is god awful he does yeah. a hor- a quick quick horseshoe theory that blames bernie sanders for donald trump just like real quick just like starts us off with this that's the first page of chapter nine. <sighs> the left and right ends of the political spectrum incensed by economic inequality for the different reasons, curled around to meet each other and their shared cynicism about the modern economy helped to like the most radical American president in recent times.
0: That's a horrible, so just, horrible just,
1: thing. Just some horseshoe theory on radical leftists.
0: Uh, yeah, that, that's just like not. He's so committed to defending the status quo just fighting the same
1: time as he's telling you that he's a radical.
0: Yeah. uh, I'm going to defend the radical enlightenment, which is what everybody has been doing for the last 400 years. Yeah. I, I, I think that's like probably the macro problem of the book on some level, because the major issue that I've just had stylistically is he never clarifies his opponent in his sort of digressions where He could be arguing against a real person. He might not be. Oftentimes it feels like the weakest possible arguments. But just give it a voice and a person to argue with. And it would be so much better. But he can't do that because it's just not doable. And I think, again, he identifies some things that I think everyone alive would more or less agree as unqualified good things. Or just most people alive now. But... He makes weird throwaway comments like the Bernie Sanders thing and other stuff that just isn't.
1: I would summarize the chapters we read as almost entirely either boring or bad.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably a a
1: lot of it is just statistics that are relatively straightforward and true. And then there's a lot of just snide comments here and there, incorrect factual statements, you know, polemic. Political I mean, perspectives.
0: A lot of his asides are just not even wrong. Like they're just like not capable of being falsified, just because it's like very vague claims about unspecified opponents or other things.
1: Yeah, and we talked about it. I don't think I'm. I'm not allowed to say I'm a Marxist if I haven't read Capital. Am I?
0: No, that's that's a rule. I'm sorry.
1: Okay, I'm not a mar. I. I'm sympathetic to Marxist ideas.
0: Yeah. That's a good way to put it. I think a lot of people yeah. are. Yeah,
1: But so I was not convinced by his you know, arguments about what the world has been doing correctly. But even in that section, I don't think he properly ties it to the Enlightenment. I think mm-hmm. the connections between the Enlightenment, which he identifies as reason, humanism, science, progress, you know, he's spelling out progress as a reality, but he's not actually connecting the other three things that the Enlightenment was about to the realization of progress. He hasn't done that in any convincing fashion yet.
0: I'd agree with Ho-
1: that. Hopefully he will attempt to do so. And if he does, we will enlighten you on why it failed.
0: Shall we do the uh, environment, peace, safety, terrorism, democracy, and equal rights for the next Is one? Is that
1: the next six chapters?
0: The next five I think that chunks it up more nicely, and those seem like they'd be uh, yeah. pretty interesting to complain about.
1: Environment, peace, safety, terrorism, democracy. Yeah, that that seems good, and then we can finish progress the time oh, after man. that, and then we can finish the book with reason, science, and humanism.
0: How is he going to measure the increase in democracy? I'm so excited to see him.
1: Democracy fly. is on the decline, literally everywhere. It has been for like two or three years now, according to yeah. democracy measurements which are always weird.
0: I, I've always just been like the the attempt to measure subjective things like that are always that,
1: that is a big problem in this literature is the attempt to just measure things mm-hmm. that aren't readily measurable.
0: Like I, I don't even know of like a definition of democracy that would satisfy enough people to then measure about like what a good democracy is. So I assume how they like Yeah come up with a bunch of like representative data we'll see how even
1: the the economic measurements you know have to do the standardization of Mm -hmm. currency which creates problem economics is fake
0: in the same way that all science is fake though
1: yeah no no absolutely absolutely
0: all science is made up the oh this one podcast actual political position is a war on science
1: absolutely no i think yeah no we are We are Heideggerians.
0: No, 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 no.
1: (laughs) If you can't be a Marxist.
0: Yeah, those are the two options in academia, according to Pinker, Heideggerians or Marxists.
1: All right. I think that about wraps it up for us. Next time, we'll keep talking Steven Pinker and keep having problems with Steven Pinker.
0: (laughs) About sums it up.
1: Yep. Thanks, everybody, for listening to episode five of the Heart, Obscurant, Heart Obscurantism podcast. We will see you next time.
0: Awesome. See y'all then.